Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in the Historico Galley section of Melbourne, Florida. It's also made possible by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, archaeologist Thomas Pluckhan talks about his work at Crystal River. We don't really know exactly what the platform mounds are for. They've been called temple mounds in the past, um, and that's based on analogy with later time periods in other areas. We'll look at a Florida photo album from violin maker V.C. Squire, who is also the namesake of Fender Squire Guitars. Although we know that V.C. Squire had visited Florida as early as the 1890s, a lot of the photographs in this album date from around the turn of the century up to the, the 1920s trip. We'll explore the history of DeLeon Springs, all that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Prehistoric people created cosmopolitan cities in Florida, constructing man-made hills called mounds. These sophisticated cultures show evidence of interaction with other societies throughout much of what would become the United States. Dr. Thomas Pluckhan is Associate Professor of Anthropology at the University of South Florida. Dr. Pluckhan gave a presentation for the Florida Historical Society Archaeological Institute about his work at Crystal River. He says that Crystal River is a particularly interesting site because of the concentration of mounds created by prehistoric people. Crystal River is occupied um, during the Woodland Period, which uh, starts about 1000 BC and goes to more or less around 1000 AD. Um, and it's specifically, it falls into a portion of that, the middle and late Woodland. Um, so the main occupation probably starts um, in the first or sec second century AD and goes to 750 to 800, 900, so right in that range. Um, it does have a variety of mounds. That's one of the things that makes the site interesting. Um, at least six mounds. It depends on how you define a mound. Um, I would say that there are uh, at least two basic types. There are the platform mounds um, and uh, one large one, Mound A, and then several smaller ones. We don't really know exactly what the platform mounds are for. They've been called temple mounds in the past, um, and that's based on analogy with later time periods in other areas um, where you did have temples put on top of mounds or um, sometimes the chief's residence on top of mound. Um, in the, in the case of the Woodland Period mounds where we have excavation data from the top of the mound, um, we don't see evidence of structures necessarily. So we, uh, I think the most common belief is probably more that these are, um, rather than temple mounds, that the, the flat top is used as sort of a stage for ritual performances, ceremonies, 
um, maybe even just entertainment sometimes. Um, and then the other type of mound are, of course, burial mounds. Um, and uh, those can take a variety of forms too. At Crystal River, you have kind of the classic burial mound shape where it's just kind of a dome-shaped mound. Um, but then you have, a, a, in one case, you have a sort of circular embankment that surrounds a burial mound that also has burials in it. So it has uh, a lot of elaboration of mounds there. Florida Frontiers listeners are familiar with early archaeology enthusiast C.B. Moore. In the late 1800s and early 1900s, Moore traveled Florida waterways in his steamboat, the Gopher, digging up archaeological sites with destructive abandon. Archaeologists today are thankful that Moore did carefully document what he found. C.B. Moore was the first to excavate and document the prehistoric mounds at Crystal River. There is an earlier source, uh, but it's very obscure, So, and there was no excavation involved. Um, so, yes, it's really C.B. Moore that brings the mounds to the attention of the archaeological community. Um, and uh, as I said, he's he, he really fell in love with Crystal River. I can't think of another site that he went back to as often as he did to Crystal River um, three times over the course of about 14, 15 years. Um, and uh, he focuses attention on the main burial mound complex because he knew that's where the artifacts that he was interested in, the sort of more exotic, uh, fancy burial goods, were going to be found. At Crystal River, C.B. Moore discovered many artifacts indicating that the prehistoric people there had an elaborate system of trade or at least contact with other Native American cultures. Thomas Pluckon. Archaeologists often use the term exchange as kind of a, a coverall because in some cases it probably is trade, of course, but in other cases it could be people going long distances, making pilgrimages and taking stuff with them or taking stuff back. Um, so, but yes, uh, it was Moore who discovered the uh, exchange items in the burial mound at Crystal River that uh, showed connections at least with um, sites as far as Ohio, Minnesota, and uh, to South Florida as well. In the mid-20th century, Florida archaeologist Ripley P. Bullen discovered a unique and intriguing human figure carved in rock at Crystal River. Yeah, it's kind of fascinating because, uh, you know, uh, Moore visited the site, but it, uh, apparently at the time that when Moore visited that the site was so overgrown uh, that Moore did not see this upright stone st uh, steely, we call it. Um, so when Bullen worked there in the 50s, he discovered this, and uh, it it kind of fueled speculation that Crystal River had connections to Mesoamerica, which was a kind of a common belief in archaeology at the time uh, that the mound building cultures in the southeast must have had a spark and influence from Mesoamerica. Um, that's not really uh, widely accepted by any stretch by archaeologists today. Um, we, you know, there it's clear that there were some in Mesoamerican influences on the southeast. Um, but the idea that mound building might have started uh, because of influences from Mesoamerica isn't isn't uh, widely believed today. Um, but the the Stila at Stila at Crystal River remains kind of a mystery. Um, Bullen was convinced that the face was old, um, but there might have been some mar modern carving of the of the torso of the figure. Um, unfortunately, since that time, uh, part of it is kind of sloughed off. It's limestone. Um, it's susceptible to, to the weather. Um, so uh, it's not as well preserved as it, as it once was. Um, but it's also, it's, uh, there's been a lot of discovery of, of cave art in the southeast uh, that make the, the steel at Crystal River less of an anomaly than it used to be. 
From the 1950s to the present, no serious archaeological work was done at Crystal River until Thomas Pluckon formed a group called the Crystal River Early Village Archaeological Project, or CREVAP. There had been, uh, after Bullen, maybe just some routine sort of park maintenance and some uh, slightly larger sort of salvage excavations when they had to replace a seawall and things like that. Um, but uh, it, it definitely seemed like the time was ripe for a little more work at Crystal River. Um, so um, uh, my colleague Victor Thompson and I did a pilot study at the park in 2008 and kind of used that as leverage to get some some funds from the National Science Foundation. Uh, and we refer to the project as the Crystal River Early Village Archaeological Project. Um, and the idea is that Crystal River is, a, is an example of uh, what, what uh, some archaeologists refer to as early village societies. It's a time period when people were uh, first starting to live in in these larger villages or the larger villages were becoming more common on the landscape and they were kind of facing some of the problems that are inherent in that transition to village life, the the more constant daily action, interactions, uh, the ecological problems that go along with living together in one uh, sedentary community. Um, and so we frame the research around that. We're very grateful to the National Science Foundation for, uh, for its funding. Uh, it's given us three years of field work. Um, we have, we're still working on the, the results of that field work. Uh, we've got tons and tons of animal bones and pottery and other artifacts to, to sort through. Um, but uh, hopefully within a couple of years, we'll have the results uh, published more and more. While early excavations at Crystal River caused extensive damage to the site, Pluckon and his team employ minimally invasive excavation techniques. Yeah, it's been a real revolution in archaeology in the past 10 years. Uh, the advent of uh, geophysical investigations, things like ground penetrating radar, resistivity. Um, these techniques have been around for a while, but uh, it's been sort of two developments that have made them more practical for archaeologists. First was um, improvements in the instruments themselves, but then also uh, the power of uh, personal computers that you can use with them to process the data. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just it's an opportunity to actually sort of see below the ground surface uh, without digging. Um, so you don't have to do the sort of exploratory investigations, excavations that to look for what you're looking for. You can kind of use these to to really target specific areas, um, and 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 as a result, do a lot less excavation than we needed than we used to have to do. Even when the Crystal River Early Village Archaeological Project began physical excavations, less destructive coring methods were used to take targeted samples. We uh, begin with the geophysics, and then we do the coring as kind of a way to follow up the geophysics and kind of ground truth it. Uh, that's a term that a lot of people use as ground truth because the geophysics do have a little ambiguity. Um, so the, the cores um, let us get a little bit of better window on the soils and the artifacts that are present. Um, and just kind of make sure that we're seeing what we thought we saw with the geophysics, and then we can go in and, and do some larger excavations if we feel it's necessary. Thomas Pluckon reiterates that the stone and metal artifacts uncovered at Crystal River over the past century indicate that it was not a primitive tribal society that inhabited the area, but a sophisticated cosmopolitan culture. The art, I think, is the easiest to make the case for a sort of a cosmopolitan influence at Crystal River because the, a lot of the artifacts that C.B. Moore excavated have obvious connections to uh, Ohio and other parts of the of of the of eastern north america um 
And I think what hasn't been appreciated with the art is the connections to South Florida, because it was often assumed that Crystal River uh, was participating in this exchange system because it had easy access to the whelk shell and conch shell. Um, we now know that's probably not the case, that those aren't really that common in the Crystal River area. So more than just a sort of a supplier, they were kind of almost middlemen or brokers between uh, South Florida, I think, and the wider Hopewell world. Um, and then uh, I think we can make a good case for architecture, too, for outside influences, because the mounds at Crystal River are really um, kind of unusual for Florida. Well, they're basically constructed with uh, shell middens, uh, so they don't have a really definitive sort of shape, no sharp angles. Um, and the mounds at Crystal River are really the opposite, uh, steep slopes, sharp angles. They look a lot, to me, like the mounds that you see further north, uh, the platform mounds especially um, have the shape of platform mounds that you would see elsewhere. Um, plaza, the plaza at Crystal River is unusual. Um, that's something we see at sites to the north. Um, and then the burial mound too, the burial mound complex with that circular embankment around uh, a burial mound. There are a couple other examples from Florida, but it's something that uh, that is, is fairly unique to the area. And then finally, I guess the music I mentioned, which uh, um, we could only get a, a sort of a glimpse at archaeologically, but uh, one of the classic Hopewell artifacts is these copper panpipes. Um, and Crystal River has a couple examples. Um, and uh, I mentioned that uh, uh, a graduate student at the University of Wisconsin in Milwaukee recently uh, recreated one based on an excavated example from Arkansas. Um, and uh, it's it seems likely that they were musical instruments and they've even reconstructed what they might have sound like. Um, so it's a, it's kind of a, something we don't get at archaeologically very much is the, the possibility of actually hearing the past. Dr. Thomas Pluckon is Associate Professor of Anthropology at the University of South Florida. Dr. Pluckon gave a presentation for the Florida Historical Society Archaeological Institute about his work at Crystal River. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. You can watch Thomas Pluckon's lecture about Crystal River and much more on our YouTube channel. You can access our YouTube channel from our website at myfloridahistory.org. Innovative guitarist Jimi Hendrix played a Fender Stratocaster. V.C. Squire was a violin maker in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Fender guitars used strings manufactured by his company and later named their series of Squire guitars after him. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society. Ben, you have a Florida photo album here assembled by V.C. Squire. 
That's right, Ben. We're uh, we're actually looking at a, a typical travel journal from the early 20th century. This one dates from about 1920. Although we know that V.C. Squire had visited Florida as early as the 1890s, uh, a lot of the photographs in this album date from around the turn of the century up to the, the 1920 strip. What's unique about this journal is that it's not only a photographic uh, journal, but it's also uh, a handwritten journal. So uh, in between, there are pages describing uh, the actual journey in, in, in a lot of great detail, which is uh, uh, very interesting and unique, and we don't see that with a lot of early journals. Uh, but the photographs kind of range in, in subject matter as well. We see a lot of uh, the traditional sort of flora and fauna, you know, photographs of pelicans and dolphins and wildlife and things like that. Uh, but also a lot of detailed photographs. It looks like uh, V.C. and his wife uh, actually took when they were traveling around Florida. So this particular trip, uh, the journal picks up right around January of 1920, and it looks like they traveled throughout southwest Florida uh, up through March of, of that same year. Um, and apparently they owned property in Fort Myers, and there are photographs of their property, uh, photographs of their neighbors. They visited, visited a lot of friends, uh, a lot of people who had moved from Michigan down to Florida, who they had known up north they'd visit with and spend time with. Uh, but what we're looking at now, this is actually an excerpt from a, an advertisement uh, for the uh, Brennan and, and Squire, who were agents for the drained Florida Everglades land uh, company. So, so Squire was kind of a big proponent of the development of Florida, and he was kind of coming in right at the beginning of this, uh, one of the first big land booms in Florida. Well, his notes in this uh, photo album indicate that he was really uh, enamored with uh, the climate of Florida, as, as many visitors at that time were, and are still today. Yeah, that's right. It's really interesting. Almost every passage, even if it, you know the, the, the passage just said it was raining every day, uh, you get the feeling that they were uh, happy with, with the environment. They really enjoyed being in Florida. You know, uh, there are a few passages here that write, you know, here each day is, is better than the, than the last, and uh, the, the people and the, the climate is so beautiful. So it's almost like he's a, a kind of a booster for Florida, you know, and he's writing and, and is hoping to, to attract more people from Michigan down here to either retire or to become involved in, in agriculture as, uh, as Squire was, uh, uh, was doing. Well, as you mentioned, the album includes a lot of historic postcards as well. If you could describe some of the images that we're looking at here. Sure. So we're actually looking at uh, right now some, some photos taken around Fort Myers. And this is early Fort Myers. In fact, there's a, uh, an early Model T crossing a bridge at Fort Myers. But if you look in the background, there's nothing. <laughs> They're crossing this very beautiful, elaborate, kind of Mediterranean-style bridge. And in the background, there's just scrub. <laughs> so, you, you know, we're, we're uh, you're really getting a, a neat glimpse at uh, what southwest Florida was like long before development. And here's a photograph of a, a field being flooded with water. So here he's demonstrating that uh, uh, that agriculture is certainly possible and prevalent. Um, we've got some great photographs of private residences, you know, including uh, Edison's house in, in Fort Myers. Um, but, you know, what's, what's kind of interesting about all of this, you know, he describes Florida as being great for agriculture and trying to promote it. Uh, and he's also uh, in one of these these w these printed advertisements. You know, he's stating that uh, you know the, these areas will never flood. Uh, but on the very next page, we've got postcards of LaBelle, Florida, in 1912, basically underwater. <laughs> uh, you know, completely swamped from one of these uh, one of these hurricanes. But he's got photographs of early cracker cowboys. Um, like I said, he, he looks like he tried to sort of cover the. Um, to get kind of get a, a full perspective of the culture and, and the people of Florida. Now, apparently, V.C. Squire's company manufactured really high-quality violins. They were called the American Stradivarius. 
Yeah, that's right. And that's what makes this particular journal so interesting because we can kind of, uh, it's, it's a fascinating a fascinating connection. So V.C. Squire started making violins in the late 19th century, but he actually learned it from his father, uh, J.B. Squire, who started making violins in, in Boston, later moved to Battle Creek, Michigan. And his father, yeah, was also known as, as the American Stradivarius. And uh, they were known for their very high quality, high quality instruments, but also their strings, and that's where it kind of brings it into the 20th century. So by the turn of the century, uh, most of the quality uh, strings were actually being made in Europe, and they're extremely expensive. So V.C. Squire decided to, uh, he actually designed equipment and decided to, to make his own strings of the same quality, but make them more uh, accessible and more affordable. And that's when Fender sort of comes in. So when Fender started making these electric instruments, the Squire String Company started making strings specifically designed for these uh, new electric guitars. Uh, Fender eventually bought the company. And then in the 1980s, when Fender was uh, reintroducing this uh, new kind of low-cost electric guitar, they uh, brought the Squire name back, and that's where we get the, the term now. So there's really not a direct connection between the, the Squire company, but you can see this evolution and why Fender decided to use the, uh, use the company's name again. And when Fender bought the VC Squire String Company, uh, great guitarists uh, like Jimi Hendrix uh, played guitars with their strings. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, anybody who played a Fender, you know, in the last uh, 40 years probably played on, on the uh, uh, on Squire st- uh, strings or at least on the, on the designs that, that VC Squire would have, uh, would have developed over the, the course of the 20th century. And anybody who learned to play guitar probably in the last 30 years uh, is familiar with the Squire, the low-cost um, Squire uh, line of guitars that Fender produced and still produces. Sure. Well, thanks a lot, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. This is Florida Frontiers. At the Leon Springs State Park in Volusia County, the Head Spring delivers 19 million gallons of crystal clear water from deep inside an underground cavern every day. This 600-acre park is probably best known for its rustic Old Spanish Sugar Mill restaurant, where diners can make their own pancakes at griddles built into the tabletops. It's a peaceful place today, but historically the area has seen its share of both serenity and conflict. Independent producer Chris Howell visited the park and filed this report. I'm standing on a sidewalk over the spillway at DeLeon Springs State Park. It's a sunny spring day today with visitors waiting for a seat at the restaurant, children playing in the spring and others just enjoying the area's stunning natural beauty. Brian Polk is the park manager. He says the park and the mill's story go back to the early 1800s. Orlando Rees bought the property in 1830. He expanded the plantation and built the first mill. Polk describes the crops and the layout of the plantation. All of this area that you can see down along the spring run would have all been cleared by slave labor. The sugar cane was grown in this lower wet area in the floodplain, and then they also cleared some of the drier property to grow cotton. And as most plantations, then they, they grew vegetable crops and corn because they needed corn to feed 
the cattle and horses, so they need that for livestock food. About 1850, Rees sold the property to Thomas Stark. During this time, cattle roamed the Florida Palmetto, and that beef was an important commodity to the Confederacy. Companies of horse soldiers called the Florida Cattle Guard were organized to help protect, round up, and drive cattle north to provide beef for Confederate troops. Rick Tunyon is an author and historian. His book, Guns of the Palmetto Plains, tells the story of the last days of the Civil War and the life of the cow hunters. He says the Stark family supported the Confederate cause, and that's why Spring Garden Plantation was targeted for destruction. They were ardent uh, supporters of the Confederacy. Uh, they had several members of the family serving with the Confederate Army, and they allowed the cow cavalry, a militia unit formed during the war, to protect and drive the herds from here to the rest of the South, used uh, their main yard as a staging area. The uh, individual cow hunters that were in the uh, cow cavalry would gather up their uh, uh, what cattle they had flushed out of the palmetto scrub, bring them to the uh, plantation and form a large herd to drive north. That was why uh, the Union command in Jacksonville decided to destroy the plantation. In the spring of 1864, Union General William Burney led a contingent of troops south out of Jacksonville to halt the flow of cattle and supplies to Confederate forces. Polk says Union forces had learned Stark was providing supplies to the Confederates. Jacksonville was held by the Union throughout the war, so that was a base of operation for uh, activities in, in Florida for the Union Army. They heard that Thomas Stark who owned the plantation here, which was called Spring Garden Plantation. It was known as Spring Garden from the early 1800s when William Williams acquired the property through a Spanish land grant. He called it Spring Garden, and then subsequent owners referred to it as Spring Garden Plantation. Well, the Union Army got word that Thomas Stark was supplying food to the Confederate Army. So he led troops down here by water, partway, and overland. Uh, some of them are from the a unit called the 17th. Connecticut. Polk says General Burney's forces destroyed the mill and much of the plantation. The Stark family had already fled before the raid. They came here, dismantled the mill, threw the machinery parts in the spring, destroyed cotton, corn, anything they could find, probably turned the cattle loose. I'm sure the, uh, the uh, Thomas Stark was long gone. Probably the, he either took some of the, his slaves with him and the others, I imagine, took off into the woods when the Union troops arrived. On May 6th, Union troops returned to Jacksonville. Thomas Stark was financially ruined and sold the plantation to Major George Norris in 1870. It's not clear exactly when, but the mill was rebuilt sometime in the late 1800s. During the next 50 years, the railroad brought tourism to the area, and the name was changed from Spring Garden to De Leon Springs. The park was a typical Florida roadside tourist attraction in 1961 when the old Spanish sugar mill restaurant opened. Volusia County partnered with the state to purchase the property and it became De Leon Springs State Park in 1982. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Chris Howell.
You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week, and until then, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org and join the daily conversation on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in the Historic O'Galley section of Melbourne, Florida. It's also made possible by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.